0: behind the lines, the greatest war letters ever written, and the stories behind them. Hosted by the Emmy award-winning journalist Barbara Harrison, with co-host Andrew Carroll, the New York Times best-selling author and military historian.
1: Dear Bert, These patients start with what appears to be an ordinary attack of flu. But when brought to the hospital, they very rapidly develop the most vicious type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. A pneumonia that means, in about all cases, death. There is no doubt in my mind that there is a new mixed infection here. But what? I don't know. We have no relief here. You get up in the morning at 5.30 and work steady till about 9.30 p.m., sleep, then go at it again. It may be a long time before I can get another letter to you, but we'll try. Dr. Roy Grist
2: Hello, and welcome to the Behind the Lines podcast, which features readings of some of the greatest war letters ever written, and the stories behind them, as told by the man who found the letters, Andrew Carroll. Andy is the director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University in California, and he has made it his life's mission to seek out and preserve correspondences from every U.S. conflict. Welcome, Andy.
0: Uh, Thank you, Barbara. It's great to be here and good to see you again.
2: Andy, you know, that letter sounds like it could have been written in the early spring of 2020 from a physician talking about a new type of virus that is killing most of his patients. But that letter was actually written over 100 years ago. On Behind the Lines, of course, we're usually talking about war letters, but this was 1918, and while there was a war being fought, World War One was still underway, this was a different kind of war, one that put doctors and nurses on the front line.
0: You know, as I was listening to that letter, I was thinking the exact same thing, that this could easily have been written today. And I recognize that we, for the Behind the Lines podcast, you know, we focus on letters written by troops and their families from every conflict in our nation's history. But the letters written during and about the Spanish flu pandemic 100 years ago were very much war letters, too, because the pandemic affected the war and the war affected the pandemic.
2: There really are so many striking parallels with today's global health battle. It was an unknown and extremely contagious virus, causing havoc throughout the country and around the globe, over a period of only a few months, though, back then. From photos of that period, we see that people were using masks and social distancing to halt the spread of the virus. And, Andy, I know you've done extensive research into that period, and you've actually written about the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. Can you give us a little more historical context?
0: Sure. So... This was the most severe pandemic in all of human history, infecting 500 million people, one third of the world's population. And there were actually uh, three waves of the flu that swept across the globe in 1918 and 1919. At least 50 million people died. And that number, the the total fatalities could even be higher because so many of the individuals responsible for counting the dead, uh, doctors, nurses, coroners, were killed by the virus themselves.
2: But there were also some differences, right, Andy, from what happened then and what's happening today. The pandemic in 1918, 1919 killed younger people at a higher rate than the elderly.
0: That's
3: right.
2: While the coronavirus is more lethal to older people and those with physical vulnerabilities. Also, of course, modern medicine is has given us many more tools to fight this new virus than they had for the Spanish flu.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, in the United States alone, we lost approximately 675,000 Americans, which is about the same number of what we lost in the entire four years of the Civil War. And you also have to consider that the population of this country a century ago was a a third of what it is now. So proportionally, that would be like losing more than 2 million men, women, and children today.
2: Andy, let's go back to Dr. Roy Grist, who we heard at the top of the show. He gives an even more detailed account of the enormity of this crisis in another letter to his friend.
1: Dear Bert, Camp Evans has about 50,000 men, or did have before this epidemic broke loose. It started about four weeks ago and has developed so rapidly that the camp is demoralized and all ordinary work is held up till it has passed. Once the pneumonia takes over, it is only a matter of a few hours then until death comes. And it is simply a struggle for air until they suffocate. It is horrible. One can stand it to see one, two, or twenty men die. But to see these poor devils dropping like flies sort of gets on your nerves. We have been averaging about one hundred deaths per day and still keeping it up. We've also have lost an outrageous number of nurses and doctors. And the little town of Aire is a sight. It takes special trains to carry away the dead. For several days there were no coffins and the bodies piled up something fierce. We used to go down to the morgue, which is just back of my ward, and look at the boys laid out in long rows. It beats any sight they ever had in France after a battle. An extra-long barracks has been vacated for the use of the morgue, and it would make any man sit up and take notice to walk down the long lines of dead soldiers, all dressed up and laid out in double rows. I don't wish you any hard luck, old man, but do wish you were here for a while, at least. It's more comfortable when one has a friend about. The men here are all good fellows, but I get so damned sick of pneumonia that when I eat... I want to find some fellow who will not talk shop, but there ain't none, no how. We eat it, sleep it, and dream it, to say nothing of breathing it 16 hours a day. I would be very grateful indeed if you would drop me a line or two once in a while, and I will promise you that if you ever get into a fix like this, I will do the same for you. Roy, Camp Devons, Massachusetts, Surgical Ward number 16, September 15th, 1918.
2: Boy, it's so great that letters like that were saved. It really gives us some real-life perspective of what people were experiencing. Andy, I know you traveled on a 50-state journey in search of war letters, and two stories of the letters that you found are related to the Spanish flu.
0: Yes. And they're both very significant. Uh, So the first involves where the Spanish flu started. And the obvious answer would seem to be somewhere in Spain. But as I think many people know now, it's only called the Spanish flu because Spain was one of the few nations that didn't censor news about the growing pandemic back in 1918.
2: Because all this was going on during World War I, right? And most countries, including America, didn't want to frighten people and hurt morale.
0: That, yeah, that's it's exactly right. And a, a scientist later discovered they don't even think the Spanish flu began overseas. But here in the United States at a World War I training fort called Camp Funston in rural Kansas. And in fact, I traveled to Camp Funston during my 50-state journey, and there's even a historical marker there that says, and I wrote this down so I could be precise, the first recorded cases of what became known to be the worldwide influenza epidemic were first reported here in March 1918. Now, to be completely accurate, what I found out is that it was first discovered by a doctor named Loring Miner from Sublet, Kansas, which is about 270 miles from Camp Funston.
2: Andy, my guess is that there's a letter out there somewhere with this story...
0: Yes, a brief one, but it's still very important. So Dr. Miner wrote to the U.S. Health Service in Washington about all this. And I quote um, He said there were 18 cases of influenza of a severe type in Haskell County. And then he went on into more detail about the deaths from this disease. From February through March 1918, so that's up to two months earlier than what the Camp Funston plaque says, residents of Sublette, some of whom were soldiers from Camp Funston on home for leave, Took the virus back to the camp. And with all those thousands of men clustered together, that's where it just caught fire.
2: Oh, sounds familiar. Military bases and troop ships, as we saw with the USS Theodore Roosevelt early on in the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, were breeding grounds for disease.
0: Exactly. I mean, the, the Camp Funsen troops herded onto crowded ships, spread the flu overseas, where it started infecting soldiers on all sides of the conflict, which is, just shows how contagious it was.
2: And what's so heartbreaking about the disease uh, was that soldiers weren't just seeing their brothers in arms dying in droves, but they had family members back in the States to worry about since the pandemic was now sweeping all across America. One of the letters you found that really moved me was written to a soldier named Harry Bott from his father in Provo, Utah, who told his son some wonderful news with a heartbreaking twist.
3: Dear Son, Be strong and have faith in the future and rest assured that all has been done that could be done. You have a fine little baby girl. She is five days old today and is doing well, and she will be waiting for you when you return. But your dear wife has passed to the other side today. Dear boy, it is sad news, but remember, God's will not ours to be done. She did not die from the effects of childbirth, but the flu was the cause. Dear boy, be brave, and remember the baby will want your care and attention when you come back again. Uncle Herman also lost his wife two weeks ago from the same flu. She was only 16 hours ill. There have been lots of people taken away from the same cause. I must close. I will write more again in a few days. The girls and wife send you their love and sympathy, in which I do too. May God give you strength to bear your burden, is my prayer for you. From your father.
2: Uh, Can you even fathom how hard it was to write that letter and how devastating to read it? That news that would be overwhelming under any circumstance, but especially to a young soldier separated from his family by 3,000 miles of ocean.
0: Yeah, and and while Harry Bott survived, 43,000 U.S. troops ultimately died from the flu, about as many who died in combat.
2: Yeah. And Andy, that letter from Harry Bott brings to mind the many people today who are unable to see their families because they have to self-quarantine all across the country.
0: Yeah. And not only that, but with the additional burden with the the nurses and doctors, because so many of the COVID-19 patients who succumbed to the virus did so in ICU wards, died in strict isolation. And these healthcare workers today are the ones who have to inform family members that their beloved has died.
2: I know. And like the 1918-19 pandemic, we see that same sense of empathy and compassion from caregivers and hospital workers today. One letter that especially moved me was by an American Red Cross nurse. Her name was Maud Fisher, and she wrote to the mother of an American soldier who caught the flu in the fall of 1918.
4: My dear Mrs. Hogan, if I could talk to you... I could tell you so much better about your son's last sickness and all the little things that mean so much to a mother far away from her boy. Your son was brought to this hospital on the 13th of November, very sick, with what they called influenza. He was brave and cheerful, though, and made a good fight with the disease. He did not want you to worry about his being sick. But I told him I thought we ought to let you know, and he said all right. He became very weak towards the last of his sickness and slept all the time. One day, while I was visiting some of the other patients, he woke up and, seeing me with my hat on, asked the orderly if I was his sister come to see him. He was always good and patient and the nurses loved him. Everything was done to make him comfortable, and I think he suffered very little, if any, pain. The chaplain saw him several times and had just left him when he breathed his last on November 25th at 2.30 in the afternoon. He was laid to rest in the little cemetery of Commercy, and sleeps under a simple white wooden cross among his comrades, who, like him, have died for their country. The cemetery where your son is buried was given to the army for our boys, and the people of Commercy will tend it with loving hands, I enclose here a few leaves from the grass that grows near in a pretty meadow. The country will always honor your boy because he gave his life for it, and it will also love and honor you for the gift of your boy. But be assured that the sacrifice is not in vain and the world is better today for it. From the whole hospital force accept deepest sympathy... And from myself, tenderest love, in your hour of sorrow. Sincerely, Maud B. Fisher.
2: What a beautiful, heartfelt letter to a mother, experiencing the greatest pain a parent could possibly endure— the loss of her child.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and it was especially tragic because her letter was written after the armistice was signed. Uh, the victim was a young American soldier named Richard Hogan who died just days after victory had been declared. And knowing that Hogan's mother would receive only a, a terse telegram from the government, Maud Fisher very thoughtfully sent her that more personal letter.
2: Do you have Mrs. Hogan's reply to Mrs. Fisher's letter?
0: Unfortunately, we don't, uh, but we do have a letter written by Mrs. A. A. Tart, also a mother who lost her son from the Spanish flu, praising the brave nurses who cared for him.
2: Let's listen.
5: Seattle, Washington, September 8, 1918. President E. O. Holland, State College of Washington, Pullman, Washington. Dear sir, I wish to thank you and the good people of Pullman for the kindness shown my son while he was ill with the Spanish influenza, for there was nothing left undone from the promptness of the telegram informing me of his serious condition to the comfort shown him and the other brave boys by the nurses. And I want to say to the parents who were not at the bedside of noble lads who passed to the great beyond as I was, do not think they died alone. Their last gaze was on nurses fighting to the last and words of comfort ringing in their ears. I will never forget these patiently suffering boys and the angels of mercy hurrying from one bedside to another. A grateful parent, Mrs. A. A. Tart.
2: That's another letter that could have been written today to nurses and doctors caring for patients all over the country. Don't you think, Andy?
0: Sadly, yes. And one of the other parallels, I mean, really interesting parallels between the 1918 pandemic and today, is documented in a letter from a brother named Chick to his sister Ruth about the pandemic in Plymouth, Mass. And this is in September 1918. And Chick uh, actually worked in the local mortuary. Dear Ruth, I have some more very bad news to write you and I guess if things keep on that by the end of the year there will be nobody left in town. Harold Ashley died yesterday at Camp Wilton and his body is to be brought to Middleborough as soon as the government can get things straightened out. As things are I can give you no further information about the funeral, only that in mass no public funerals or any other gatherings can be held. The schools, churches, lodges, clubs, book rooms, etc. are closed down tight. All Red Cross workstations are suspended, and they have cut out some of the electric car trips as so many men are sick. If I find it is all right for you to go to Harold's funeral, I will telephone you, but do not go unless I do, for at this time it doesn't pay to take any chances. Hoping you will not catch anything. With love, Chick. Plymouth, Mass., September 30th, 1918.
2: You know, another similarity to what was going on over a century ago is the uncertainty of how to treat and ideally cure people of the disease. Here's a letter from a woman named Alma Valentine Lasher in Rochester, New York, to her daughter, also named Alma, who was visiting a friend in Toronto, Canada at the time.
6: Dear Alma, received your letter today. And dear, don't worry or fret because you can only walk in the yard. Be glad you can do that. Think of being sick and not even being able to do that. I sincerely hope you keep well. Keep in fresh air, all you can. That is a preventative fresh air. And keep warm. Put your bathrobe on at night to keep warm and open windows. Hot lemonade at night is excellent for influenza. There is an awful lot of the flu in Rochester and so many dying and so much misery and impossible to get nurses. Well, dear, keep well and lots of love and bless you, your affectionate mother.
2: You know, I was just thinking my mother would be recommending lemon tea as the remedy with a splash of whiskey or some other such elixir. That pandemic blamed on birds, didn't last that long. By 1919, the Spanish flu had pretty much disappeared and was almost immediately forgotten, especially compared to other national crises. From what I've read, it seems to be because it didn't leave any marks or disabilities like smallpox or polio, and there were no medical breakthroughs like a vaccine, mainly because scientists thought it was caused by bacteria instead of a virus. Andy, getting back to your 50-state trip, you wrote about an incredible virologist named Dr johan holton who was sort of a mix between indiana jones and dr anthony fauci and decades after the spanish flu pandemic he set out to better understand why the virus was so lethal right
0: right and and One of the reasons that scientists like Holton couldn't figure out the true makeup or nature of the Spanish flu was they couldn't find tissue samples that could be analyzed. All of the corpses, and not to sound gross, had deteriorated to the point of being no help. But Holton realized that there might be one possible exception. People who had been buried in tundra or frozen earth. So, Dr. Holton picked a small fishing village in Alaska, it's called Brevig Mission, where the Spanish flu had wiped out 90% of the population, leaving alive only, I think it was, um, eight young children and teenagers. And his aim was to disinter a body from the local cemetery and dissect the lungs.
2: Wow! and when was all that happening?
0: So, Holton actually made two trips, uh, but the second, in 1997, was the more important one. So, he got the permission of the village elders and succeeded in digging up a woman who had been killed by the 1918 pandemic and was buried seven feet down in the cold Alaskan ground. And he had gone through so much trouble to fly there that he divided the lung tissue he found into several packages and sent them all back to the same lab in Washington, D.C., by the way, the Postal Service, UPS, and FedEx. I mean, he wanted to make absolutely oh, sure that, oh. you know, it got there. So long story short, uh, he and other virologists were able to reconstruct the Spanish influenza's entire gene sequence and successfully regrow the virus. This was a feat that had never been accomplished before. And Barbara, you mentioned at the top of the show that the Spanish flu killed younger people at a higher rate. And one of the things that that they learned is that the 1918 virus caused the immune system to overreact. It's actually called storming. And that's what killed so many otherwise healthy young men and women. So the work that Holton and the other virologists have done has also proved critical in preventing future forms of viruses.
2: Now, Andy, a few years back, you followed Holton's footsteps to Alaska, right, and found a letter describing the flu after it had devastated Brevik Mission.
0: That's right. So I wanted to visit Brevik Mission to see the cemetery where Holton had dug up the woman whose tissue he'd removed. Now, to get there, you have to first, you you have to fly into Nome, Alaska, and then take a smaller plane out to Brevik Mission. So before my flight, I visited Nome's lone historical museum. And it was there that I came upon a six-page letter written in February 1919 by a local banker named Levi Ashton about how Brevig Mission was almost entirely wiped out by the pandemic. Uh, the letter is incredibly graphic. And there's one portion in particular that seems relevant in that, along with the physical toll, a pandemic takes a psychological toll. And we're seeing this now with the emotional impact COVID-19 is having. And this is just one terrible story that Levi Ashton wrote back in 1919.
1: Several Alaskans took their own lives rather than risk succumbing to the flu. Two natives hung themselves over in Baldwin's gymnasium. One of them hung himself to a coat hook on the wall, which was too low to do the job properly, and he had to kneel down to accomplish his ends. When he had expired, a friend took him down and, removing the noose from his neck, placed it on his own and repeated the stone.
2: That's pretty gruesome. Why do you think he included such explicit details? I suppose there's something cathartic about getting those images out of one's head and down on paper.
0: I think that's definitely part of it. And I also wonder if there was maybe even subconsciously – that he wanted to leave a record for future generations. I think he wanted them to take seriously how horrific these pandemics can become and not to take them lightly.
2: I know. Letters like that are being written right now. In fact, an email from the current pandemic has been widely circulated on the web, and perhaps we should end this episode with something about what people are going through today. This email was written in the spring of 2020 by an ICU nurse in a New York City hospital. Here's an excerpt. A lot of people
6: have asked me what it's like here. I truly don't have adequate descriptors in my vocabulary, try as I might. So I'll defer to the metaphor of fire. We are attempting to put out one fire while three more are cropping up. Then we find out a week or two later that we unknowingly threw gasoline on one fire because there's still so much we don't know about this virus. Then suddenly, there's no water to fight the fire with. We're running around holding ice cubes in an effort to put out an inferno. And the entire time you've been in this burning building, you barely have what you need to protect yourself. The protection you're using. The guidelines governing that protection evolved with the surge. One-time-use N95? That's the prior standard. And after what we've been through? that's honestly hysterical. As we were surging here, the CDC revised our guidelines because the PPE shortage was so critical. Use anything, they said. Use whatever you have for as long as you can and improvise what you don't have and still they die and still there is overwhelming grief. Everyone is grieving. We've heard plenty of the public's grief. Everyone's grief is different, but it doesn't change the discomfort, the despair on various levels. Now that I've had the time to reflect and write, now that I've let the walls down in my mind, to let the grief flood in. Now that I've seen this grief for what feels like the thousand time, since the first week of March as a nurse in a COVID ICU in New York City, it's time you heard our side. This is devastating. This is our reality. This is our grief.
2: And we know that unless you were there, it's hard to really fathom the despair that these frontliners have experienced. We're glad that we have these letters that let us at least try to feel their pain. And so, Andy, our time is about up. This has been just one of what will be an ongoing series of Behind the Lines podcasts, and you can find more information on our website, And.
0: To our listeners, uh, you might even have war letters or emails from your family to share that will end up on a future episode. And you can always contact me by visiting warletters.us.
2: And be sure to tune in for future episodes, which will cover letters of combat, love, faith, and other topics. I'm Barbara Harrison. Thanks again for listening to Behind the Lines.